you'll agree with me as we get into this. It's so different, really, from any other book of the Bible. It's a story filled with irony, satire, character reversals, humor. As we look at this book, we're going to laugh. We're going to be surprised. And I think you'll be most surprised to discover that while you're shaking your head at this poor, pathetic excuse for a prophet, you start to realize, man, I may be just as pathetic as Jonah. I may be just as poor an excuse as a follower of Jesus Christ and and be just as pathetic as he was in how I love other people. It's an upside-down story. Jonah was called to go east, but instead he went west. While pagans were praying, the man of God was sleeping. He wanted to die while the pagans were praying and making sacrifices so that they could live. Jonah finally prayed a prayer of thanksgiving from a fish's belly. He preached a five-word sermon that resulted in one of history's greatest spiritual awakenings. Jonah fell in love with the vine while hating a city filled with repentant people. God questioned Jonah's anger. Jonah protested God's grace. Everything is upside down. Everything is exactly the opposite of what you would expect it to be in this book. The prophet Jonah is no hero in this story. He's a negative example of how not to respond to God, of how not to be a messenger for God. In in many ways, Jonah is the villain of the story. And the heroes are pagan sailors and a giant fish and the most vicious ruler of the most vicious nation on earth at the time. Even cattle and a worm are the heroes in this story compared to Jonah. And in this introduction to these sermons, I want to do a couple things today. I want to share with you two ways to outline the book. We're going to read through Jonah together this morning. We're going to look at a couple of New Testament parallels, and then I want to leave you with a couple of questions for you to consider about yourself. I believe that the book of Jonah is much more than a parable. I believe that it is an actual historical account. There are too many historical details in it to be just a parable. You know, when you read Jesus' parables, they're kind of vague. But this book is extremely specific. For example, Nineveh was the capital of the dreaded Assyrian Empire, the greatest socio-political threat of the day. And eventually God would use the Assyrians to enact His judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel and wipe them off the face of the earth. And as we know from the book of 2 Kings... Jonah was a real man. He was an actual prophet in the northern kingdom. In fact, in 2 Kings chapter 14, it says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. And he reigned forty-one years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Labo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So, Jonah was a real man. Nineveh was a real place. The book of Jonah is a real account. That being said, this book is also an ingenious an artfully crafted piece of literature. 
Now, we don't know who actually wrote the book, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was a gifted storyteller and a skilled writer. And this is evidenced in the many different ways in which this book is structured. I mean, it's like an onion. You just keep peeling it back and there's another layer. So I'm going to share with you two of those layers, two ways to outline Jonah. The first, uh, really it mirrors the outline of Genesis 1 and 2. Now let me explain what I mean by that. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world in how many days? It's not a trick question. How many? Six days. And then on the seventh day, He rested. So there are seven scenes in Genesis 1 and 2, and they're paralleled. Okay, when you're reading Genesis 1 and 2, day 1... God creates light. Day four, He creates sun, moon, and stars and separates day from night. Okay? On day two, God separates the land, the water from the sky. Day five, He creates the birds and the fish. See the parallels there? On day three, God creates dry land and plants to inhabit the land. And on day six, He creates animals and creatures and people to live on the land and eat the plants. And so each of those days are parallel. That leaves the seventh day, the Sabbath day, kind of hanging out there on its own for emphasis. And that emphasizes that God has completed His creation and it sets aside the Sabbath day as a special day, a sacred day, a day to be kept holy. Well, the same thing is happening here in the book of Jonah. We have seven scenes in this book. Scene one and four contain two different commissionings. The first time, Jonah rejects the commission. And the second time, Jonah accepts the commission begrudgingly. In scenes two and five, we have two pagan conversions. In scene two, we've got the pagan sailors who began to pray and sacrifice to the Lord God of Israel. And then in the other scene, in scene five, you've got the people of Nineveh repenting of their sins and turning to the God of Israel. Scenes 3 and 6 are both prayers. Scene 3, Jonah is praying and thanking God for his grace from the belly of the fish. In scene uh, 6, Jonah is praying a prayer of anger at God for his grace. He doesn't want God to be graceful to the people of Nineveh. And again, that leaves scene 7 all by itself. And that is the climactic dialogue between God and Jonah. Those final verses of the book are the point of the story. As God questions Jonah. Now, Jonah never answers those questions. Because it forces us, as the readers, to answer those questions. It's as if God is questioning us. And there it lies the point of the story of Jonah for us today. That's the first way to outline this. Let me share with you a second way to outline this as well. And this comes not from me. This comes from Timothy Keller's book, The Prodigal Prophet. Basically, he says the story of Jonah revolves around two scenes, two major incidents. In chapters 1 and 2, Jonah fails to obey God's command. In chapters 3 and 4, God gives the same command. And again, Jonah does obey begrudgingly. And these two accounts are nearly parallel with each other, as you'll see on the screen. So uh, we see scene one, Jonah, the pagans in the sea. Scene two, Jonah, the pagans and the city. And we can see three lessons for us to learn. How Jonah interacts with God's word, first of all. 
In verses 1 through 3 of chapters 1 and 3, we see how Jonah interacts with God's Word. And we know the first time, he doesn't interact well. He rejects God's Word. He disobeys God's Word. In the second account, he receives God's Word. He heeds it. He does what he's supposed to do. Not because he wants to, but because he doesn't want to end up in a fish again. Right? You wouldn't want to do that either, would you? He doesn't want to go to timeout again, Kelly. So he says, okay, I'll do it. Right, But then the second lesson we can learn is how Jonah interacts with God's world. God's world. So we see that in uh, the rest of chapter 1 and the rest of chapter 3. Now, Jonah doesn't have very good feelings in his heart for these pagans. All right, Now, the pagans on the boat... He doesn't care that the, you know, the storm is coming. He doesn't care you know, that they're upset and they're freaking out. He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. And so he finally comes you know, to realize that this storm is because of him, that God is punishing him, God is after him. And so he just sort of gives up and says, you know, just throw me overboard. And they do. All right, in the second scene, Jonah finally is at Nineveh. And he's preaching to Nineveh. Now, remember what I said. In 2 Kings, what 2 Kings said, Jonah was the prophet that God used to tell the king of Israel to expand Israel's borders. Jonah was a patriot. Jonah was an Israelite of Israelites. And here God is sending him to Nineveh, the most violent, vicious, wicked nation on earth, the enemy of Israel. I mean, it would be like a Tennessee fan going next Saturday to cheer on Georgia State. (laughs) He said, no, I'm not going to do it. But then he went and he did it. But that's his view of God's world. It's 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 an antagonistic view of God's world. But then we see the third lesson for us, and that is Jonah and God's grace. Again, these two different scenes. So in chapter 2... God teaches Jonah grace through a fish. And at the end of the story, God teaches Jonah grace through a plant. And so we're going to dig into this. We're going to really enjoy this over the next few weeks, I think. There's so much here to unpack. And and before we read the story together, I want to say a word about the elephant in the room in this story. Or should I say, the giant man-eating fish in the room in this story, right? Because some people really have a problem with that part of the story. They read this story and they think, well, you know, okay, so a giant fish swallows this man. He's alive in its belly for three days. I think people in their minds get this part of the story confused with Pinocchio, right? You know, because Pinocchio is like on the raft in the, in the belly of the well and he's building a fire and all this kind of stuff. That, I don't think that's what is going on in the, in the belly of this fish. But this is the reason some people insist that Jonah must be a parable. Now, let me just put this to rest. If you believe in a creator God who created the universe out of nothing, if you believe that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the grave, is alive today, and is coming again, why would you have a problem believing that a giant fish was directed by God to swallow Jonah? Isn't creation and resurrection a far greater miracle than this? All right, so can we just agree not to let that be an issue? Because my God is big enough to create whatever size fish he needs and have it do whatever he needs it to do. He could have sent that fish to preach to Nineveh if he wanted. So, he's God, right? 
And that might have been a, a more interesting story, actually. But anyway, so as we read through this together, I want you to follow along in your copy of the Scriptures, because we're going to read all four chapters right now. Uh, if you want to follow in the Pew Bible, it is the same translation I'm using, and that's page 782. And these outlines that are on your bulletin, keep these outlines in mind as we read through this together. Here we go. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let's cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. And then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, And made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas And the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. 
salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now that's an arrival right there, right? I mean, that's... Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed in God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. And then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion. And he did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarsus. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Don't you just know he was sitting out there just cheering on, just hoping and hoping that the fire and brimstone was going to come down and destroy it? Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Roll credits, end of story. Again, leaves you kind of unfulfilled, doesn't it? There's loose ends. We don't like loose ends. I want to point out two New Testament parallels to the book of Jonah. The first is a direct parallel that Jesus makes with himself. We heard it in our New Testament reading this morning. 
Jesus takes Jonah, an otherwise negative example for us, and turns him into a sign of his own death and resurrection. Just as Jonah went into the fish's belly for three days and three nights, Jesus said, the Son of Man will go into the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And then Jesus tells the Pharisees, now something greater than Jonah is here. See, Jesus doesn't just use Jonah to explain how he foreshadows the Son of Man's death and resurrection. Jesus is leveling a stinging indictment against the Pharisees. Because if the Ninevites, again, some of the most wicked, evil, violent people to ever live, if the Ninevites repented and turned to God in faith after hearing a five-word sermon from Jonah, what does that say about these supposed religious, law-abiding Jewish scholars who refuse to accept the preaching and miracles of the very Son of God? That's what Jesus is saying. That's why Jesus said that the people of Nineveh would condemn them. The Pharisees were without excuse. Don't you think Jesus could say the same thing about us today? We would certainly consider ourselves more like the Pharisees than the Ninevites, right? I mean, we would say that, hey, we go to church. We read the Bible. We tithe. We go to Sunday school. We're good, honest, hardworking, law-abiding people. We are nothing like the people of Nineveh. But if that is true, then God expects for us to hear and heed His Word more and faster than the murderers, idolatrous Ninevites, right? We are without excuse. If they could hear such a simple message and respond so immediately and wholeheartedly, then how much more should we? The second New Testament reference is an indirect one. And it's one that somehow I never picked up on until I read Timothy Keller's book. And that is how similar Jonah is, and we saw it in that video earlier, how similar Jonah is to the story of the prodigal son. Okay, you know the story of the prodigal son, right? You know, dad has two sons. One son's a good son. One son's not so good. And the not-so-good son says, Dad, you're dead to me. Give me my half of the inheritance. I'm leaving. And he takes the money and he spends it in wild living until he is dirt poor and he's slopping pigs and he comes to his senses and says, My father's servants have it better than this. I'm going to go home. And he starts home. He's got this speech prepared about how, you know, don't, I don't expect to come back as your son, but could you hire me as your servant? And the father sees him walking down the road and runs to him and embraces him and welcomes him home as a son. Doesn't even let a son go through a speech. He's weeping. He kisses him on the neck. He forgives him immediately. He says to his servants, go kill the fatted calf, get the, my ring, put on his hand, put my best robe and sandals on him. We're going to have a party. And in the middle of that party, the father realizes his oldest son is standing out there in the field pouting. So he goes to his oldest son and says, what's wrong? And his oldest son says, this no good son of yours takes half the inheritance, blows it on parties. He comes back home and you welcome him with a celebration. Whereas I've been here working hard for you all these years and you've never so much as given me a goat to grill and have a party with my friends. 
And the father says, my son, everything that I have is already yours. This son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Don't I have a right to celebrate that? The story of the prodigal son is remarkably similar to the story of Jonah. I think Jesus had to have Jonah in mind as he told that story. The first half of the book of Jonah, Jonah's like the wayward son who runs away from the father to go to a distant land and finds himself in the bottom of the barrel or in the, fish of a, the belly of a fish, whichever the place may be. But in the second half of the book, Jonah's like that pharisaical older son who gets all upset and mad because God has shown grace to the people of Nineveh. And Jonah's outside the city in the desert pouting because God has forgiven them. And God comes out to Jonah, just as the father did to the oldest son, and says, don't I have a right to be gracious and merciful to these people? Do you have a right to be angry? See, Jesus ends his parable like Jonah with a cliffhanger. It's unresolved. The father goes out to implore his eldest son to join the celebration. In Luke 15, 31, he says, My son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And Jesus leaves the story there. That ends it. He leaves the audience wondering, how's the older brother going to respond? Is he going to come around to his father's point of view? And join the celebration? Is he going to be restored in relationship to his brother? Or is he going to stubbornly stay out there in the field, separated from his own family by his selfishness and his self-righteousness? What is he going to do? And in the same way, Jonah leaves us hanging and wondering, what will Jonah do? Is he going to come around to see God's point of view and rejoice over the revival that's breaking out in Nineveh? Is he going to go on to maybe preach other revivals in other pagan nations? Or will Jonah stubbornly sit in the desert heat, separated from God and from people by his own selfishness and self-righteousness? What will Jonah do? And the point of both stories is to force us to ask ourselves the same questions. Are we like the Pharisees and the Pharisaical son? Are we like the reluctant prophet? Are we so arrogant and self-righteous that we can't accept those that God accepts by His grace and mercy? I mean, how often do we get upset over silly things like parties with our friends with freshly grilled goat meat? Or enjoying the shade of a weedy vine instead of being broken over the lostness of our culture and the people around us. Consider that this morning. Whose heart and passion do you reflect today? The heart of God for lost sinners or the heart of Jonah for your own comfort and pride? How do you respond to God's Word? Do you hear it and heed it immediately and joyfully or begrudgingly or not at all? How do you respond to God's world? Do you love your enemies? Do you pray for those who persecute you? Or do you want to see them get what's coming to them? Maybe you just want to keep your head down and mind your own business rather than sticking your nose where it doesn't belong and risk rejection or worse. 
How do you respond to God's world? Lost and broken as it is. How do you respond to God's grace? Do you run from God's grace, preferring a self-help style of Christianity? You know, you just got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Do you preach grace when it's convenient, but then resent it when your style of justice doesn't come about? See, Jonah knew. He admitted. He knew that God was gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. And he wasn't happy about that. He wanted to see Nineveh suffer God's wrath. Is that where your heart is? I pray that you will respond to God's Word, the Gospel today, and receive God's grace. Don't run away. Don't resist God's love for you. I implore you, turn from your sins and repent. Don't make God send a storm and a fish to get your attention. I pray that today, if you have not, you would receive Jesus Christ as your Lord, that you would know the grace of God in your heart and let it transform you from the inside out. Let Jesus give you a fresh story to tell. How else might you be running from God this morning? Perhaps you are a Christian, but you've never been baptized. And you think, well, I'm too old now. I'm too prideful now. I can't do that. Don't run from God. The Bible commands us to be baptized to proclaim our faith. If you've not done that, you're no better off than Jonah. Maybe God is leading you or your family to unite with this church. Maybe He's been calling you to serve in full-time Christian ministry and you've been resisting it. Or maybe God has been calling you to serve in some aspect of this church. It could be on a committee or a team. It could be teaching a Sunday school class, working with children or youth. Maybe God has laid on your heart somebody that you know is lost and you've been too afraid to share the gospel. We all can be guilty of running from God like Jonah. This morning I pray as we stand and sing that you would instead run to Him and trust Him today. Would you stand and pray with me? Father God, We all have been and contend to be like Jonah in so many ways. Father, I know that there are people right here this moment. Their hearts are running away from you. They may be physically standing in a Sunday morning service, but their hearts are running away. And I pray, God, that your spirit would grab hold of them and bring their hearts to you in faith and trust, and surrender, and obedience. In the name of Christ we pray.